We're actually in Jeremiah this Sunday. Jeremiah 17. I'll explain why as we get going this morning. I'll read the first ten verses. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their asherim. Beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Let's pray. Father, be pleased by your spirit to lead us through this text. Open our eyes. Help us see ourselves in the light of your word. Help us see Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, I had um, had the opportunities, many of you know, Thursday and Friday to attend a fundraising boot camp. It's down in Charlotte, North Carolina. So it, it's kind of a um, it's kind of a required thing by TLI. Honestly, I was looking forward to it in a way, but I was looking forward to it being um, over with more than anything. The, the one thing that I was looking forward to was finding out that um, a, a guy who's become a good friend of mine. Somebody that I met uh, at Southern Seminary, he was in my program, graduating together, he was going to be there too. So even within like the, a, a week before I announced a transition, um, he and his family announced to their church in Texas uh, that they will be moving to Brazil to join very much a sister organization to TLI. It's called Reaching and Teaching out of Louisville. But he will actually move to Brazil to do the same thing there that I will be doing in multiple places. So he's heading into the support raising phase as well. So found out each other was going, met each other at the airport, um, decided to split the cost of the car, split the cost of the hotel, and just make the most of the time away um, away from family. So we meet up, go out to eat, 10 minutes away from the airport, so within, you know, 15 minutes of kind of reuniting with each other, hadn't seen each other in a while, uh, within minutes, we're finding ourselves sitting down at this restaurant, unloading ministry burdens on each other. It's what pastors do when they get together. It's how's life, how's church, what, 
what can I pray for you about? And suddenly this, um, this happy, light reunion with a close friend becomes uh, very much a, a heavy, heavy atmosphere there in the restaurant. Some of the burdens we shared were um, mutual to us, again, just both being pastors in ministry. Some uh, unique to us individually in our settings, in our, in our churches, where, again, instantly the room uh, is just filled with the heaviness where the, the weight of sin and the effect of the fall and the deceptive nature of the human heart are just the, 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 the spurring of that weight. They are the weight behind the weight. And again and again, we found ourselves commenting. If they can fall, or if they can fail or if their marriage can end, or if that guy can get bitter and deny the faith, or if she can snap, or if he can break, so can I. So can we. So can my marriage. So can your marriage. So can you. If you don't believe that, <clears throat> then this text today is definitely for you. If you do believe that, then this text definitely today is for you. Either way, this text today is definitely for you. We will get back to Mark next week. But for this week, it just seemed fitting to focus here because I've been struck lately at the truthfulness of this text on display in people that I know everywhere. And obviously, if you haven't connected the dots already, the verse in particular that I'm thinking of targeting ultimately is verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? As always, since we are dropping 17 chapters into Jeremiah, some context I think would be helpful. So back in chapter 6, God had instructed Jeremiah to preach to the people from whom he was about to completely remove the sound of joy and gladness from their midst because of their sin. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will silence, uh, I will silence, in this, pl- I will silence this place. I'm sure it says something else that's probably a typo. You can read the verse right there. Before your eyes and in your days, and the voice of myrrh and gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, he, he warned Jeremiah that upon hearing these words, the people were going to ask why. Why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? And God would answer, Because your fathers have forsaken me and have gone after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and have not kept my law. And because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, 
Every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me, for I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. And to make the undeniable reality of their sin crystal clear, he uses really vivid imagery in chapter 17. He says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. In other words, their sin is etched in stone. It's undeniably there, and it is permanent. They will not listen to the law. They will not listen to the prophets calling them to repentance. They will not turn away from their sin, and God will not overlook it. He also says in verse 1, With a point of diamond, their sin is engraved on the tablet of the heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their asherim, or you pronounce that a number of different ways, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains in the open country. So follow the logic. The sin of Judah is engraved upon the hearts of the people. It was part of them. It was in them. It was in their hearts. And here, it affected their worship. This is great to meditate on as we prepare for communion later, where Paul charges the Corinthians to examine their hearts before they partake. So that charge that we issue at the front end of communion, I'm issuing now. Examine your hearts throughout this text. Sin in their hearts inevitably corrupted their worship, which is why the connection is made in verse 1 between their hearts and the horns on the altar. And look at the effects of it, parents in particular. Because he's using generational imagery here with Judah as the sinful parent and then her children. meaning successive generations birthed into this. Inherent, decisive, non-repented sin. Their children do what? Verse 2. They pick right up on it and they follow in their stead. While their children remember their altars and their asherim beside every green tree and on the high hills. The imagery is their parents sinned decisively. They would not listen to the word. They would not listen to the prophets. They were unrepentant. It's the imagery of sin engraved with a pen of iron and the point of a diamond. And their children not only learned that way to the pagan altars from their fathers, but they go back there themselves to worship. So God says in verse 3, Your wealth and all your treasures I will give as spoil, as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. God says, I will give everything that I've given you away to people who are no more worthy of my gifts than you ever were. Don't miss the imagery of verse 4 because it is so true. It is so applicable. It is transgenerational, transcultural. Remember, decisive sin. It's in their hearts. They refuse the word. 
They refuse the messengers of the word, calling them to repentance. They leave the altar of worship to worship at pagan altars. But look at verse 4. So they don't want God. They've turned away from him. They've rejected his word. They've rejected his messengers. They will not repent. They've left worshiping him to worship at pagan altars. But when God begins to talk about stuff, the gifts that he had graciously given them, the imagery suggests that he will pry it. Pry it. From their reluctant fingers. It is verse 3. He says, I will give away to others equally unworthy of my gifts as you. In verse 4, it's because I will give it away to others that you will loosen your hand. It's so typical of humanity. We want his gifts, we expect his gifts. But we don't want him. Our sin declares that. And what is sad is that we would gladly continue indefinitely in our rejection of him if we could continue holding on to the benefits that are in him all too often. Which is why, while there is a heavy, heavy, negative theme of judgment for sin in this text, Brothers and sisters, this text, what God is doing here is grace on display, ultimately. It's judgment, but it is grace on display, ultimately, because God says he's doing this. Chapter 16, verse 15. Why? He's doing this to bring them back. With such power, such grace, such mercy... That he says it will no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. And ultimately, what is it for us? The Lord lives who brought up his people out of this present evil age. As Paul says in Galatians 1. Through Christ who gave himself for our sins through the Father who raised Christ from the dead and through the power of the Spirit who effectively broke through the heart hardened and given over to sin. This is grace. You may ask the question as you're reading through Jeremiah 16 and 17, why is God so angry? He says, you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. Why is he so angry at them? Haven't the same sins that he describes here been taking place long before this all over the world? Among other people everywhere, if not worse, and God hasn't broken in among them with wrath in this way? It's a valid question. I think God answers it in verses 5 and 6. He says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, 
whose heart turns away from the Lord, he is like a shrub in the desert, shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. The phrase that particularly grips me in those words is whose heart turns away from the Lord. Okay, so in general, is every human being who trusts in man rather than God under the, 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 the Genesis 3 curse? Yes, obviously. We rehearse that regularly from Genesis 3. We talk about it regularly from Romans 1. We're reminded that even among those who are ignorant, to look at nature and worship it rather than the one that created and came to redeem it by shedding his blood to the death is to reject God and merit his wrath. But I don't think he's talking general here. I think he's talking specific. Brothers and sisters, he's talking to his people. For a person to whom God has revealed himself in a more specific way than nature. So through his word, by his spirit, in his son, for that person to turn his heart away, as he describes at the beginning of this chapter, from faith, expressed in worship, to sin, worshiping elsewhere, wanting God's gifts, but not wanting God, not his son, not his spirit, trusting in human flesh or false idols. I think what Jeremiah is reminding us of is that is curse worthy to a completely different degree. These are the people he's addressing here. It's not, it's Judah. It's not Egypt. It's not Babylon that he's talking to here. It's those to whom he revealed himself in a gracious way. Like he did to no other people on the face of the earth. So ultimately, by application, he's talking to us. He's talking to you. He's talking to churchgoers, Bible readers, covenant members, professing believers. Included in this is no doubt your lost neighbor, no doubt the ignorant tribe person on the other side of the world who's never heard the gospel, but he is specifically addressing you who have knowledge of him and have already or will in the future turn from him to trust elsewhere and worship at another altar. You fill in that blank. To turn from what God has revealed to you about himself in the person and work of his son is to bring upon yourself what he says here is a curse in which God likens your existence to a shrub that needs water to live yet trying to survive in the desert with shallow roots that not only cannot find water because there's none in the desert, but cannot even reach it when it does come close. Its destiny is to dry up and die. Compare, compare this to what was offered and rejected in verses 7, and 10, 7 through 10. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does 
not cease to bear fruit. So the person who turns away from the Lord and trusts in man, he says, is cursed. That means he's left to himself, to his own resources, to survive. Think about that. Being under a curse from God is not just this terrifying picture of a person who's insane or possessed. He's saying it often takes the more innocent-looking form of, of a person who's just given over to his own sinful heart's desires so it's a self-dependent person who simply thinks he has life under control all by himself. That's a curse. And if that doesn't sound all that bad to you, all that serious to you, the picture is of even the most resourceful, intelligent, trustworthy person as a shallow-rooted shrub in the desert trying not only to survive, but to survive against the will of the God that he has rejected who is actively, sovereignly, graciously working to prevent him from finding water so that in the end he repents and believes so that he might find water and live and flourish so if it were just about surviving many people could and many people do make it on their own but it's not It is that an individual who has turned away from God is striving against an all-powerful God just to survive. So it's God keeping the roots short. It's God sending rain just outside their reach. It's God leaving them to themselves and their plans and limited by their own resources and their abilities. But it is also an act of mercy that he does this so that you might realize you can't live without him. You can't live without his grace so that you consequently cry out to him in repentance and faith or keeping with the imagery, dry up in your resistance to him and die. By contrast, to the person who simply trusts in him, as he's revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus, God promises blessing. And what that looks like in the text is not a lone shrub trying to survive in the desert with shallow roots and no water and with God as its enemy, but a tree planted by the water. It's verse 7. It's Psalm 1. And this tree's roots are deep. They stretch out and they find water. They find their way to the source of life. And while the heat without the water makes the tree in the desert... Right up and no more. The heat and the water make the tree by the river blessed and healthy and green and fruitful. Not even a drought can stop that tree from bearing fruit, and the main difference is the object of their trust man or God. We are reminded clearly here that life does not always go easy or smooth for the person who trusts God. He still deals with scorching heat. He still deals with drought. 
Because he trusts in the Lord, fear and anxiety do not overtake him when trials come because he doesn't look to himself for strength and survival, but to God who by his strength, according to his promise in Christ, sustains him. Which is a big contrast from the person who rejects God and rejects his word and rejects his messengers and is left to himself to be dominated by his own anxieties and fears and consumed about his own preservation not even understanding how shallow his own roots are or how vain his search for water will be on his own. He will dry up and die if he does not repent and believe. So we are supposed to see life here directly tied to the object of our faith. I'm just sticking with the imagery in the text here. If you're trusting in God, in Christ, you're still Stable is the tree. You're healthy. It's the tree. You're rooted. It's the tree. I'm not talking physically here. I'm talking primarily spiritual stability and health. Obviously, there are connections, effect on the physical and the mental and emotional. When that's there, the idea is that trusting God in the person and work of Jesus by the power of the Spirit makes you stable in God because God is stable. And God sustains you according to his promise in Christ. So he will not let you fall. He will keep you. On the other hand, if your faith and confidence is in yourself or some other human institution, you are not trusting in God and your life may be a mess. Because you're not stable. You can't be. You're not healthy. You can't be. And again, while physical things are affected to some degree, I'm talking primarily spiritual here. Spiritual stability. Spiritual health. You're a wreck spiritually if your confidence in life is not anchored in the person and the work of Jesus. Likely, fear and anxiety dominate you. Trials threaten you and you despise them and you are consumed by your own preservation. And God may not let you be anything other than a nervous, fearful, anxious wreck by grace. So that by grace you might see the hopelessness of your sin, of abandoning him for something lesser than him, and come back to him in repentance and faith. So don't tell me you're okay. This is stemming from fried chicken place in North Carolina. Me and my friends sitting there thinking, how, how does this happen? How do we have a missionary that preaches what many of you affirmed is the best message you've ever heard, and while he's preaching it to us, he's being unfaithful to his wife. How does that happen? Because that's happened here. How do friends and family members and couples just call it quits or crack and throw it all away and you talk to them in the context and you're like I'm doing all, I'm doing all right you know life's, life's rough for all of us no brothers and sisters stop don't tell me you're okay if your life evidence is a heart that is turned away from the Lord to trust in you or someone else or something else you're not okay and you will never be okay until you see that which is exactly why God in his mercy 
may be pleased to make life so miserable for you right now, dominated by your fears and your anxieties, so that you remember what you've rejected in Christ and see the insufficiency of what you've rejected or what you've embraced, what you've chosen in His place. And in so doing, you'll repent and return to Him. Every one of us today is either a withering, shallow-rooted, parched shrub in the desert or a healthy, deep-rooted, well-watered, fruitful tree by the river of God's eternal life in Christ. Every one of us. And what makes the difference between the two is the one to whom you are entrusting your soul and your life. Now, every one of us here today would no doubt say, well, that's obvious. Of course I'm trusting in God. I'm not dumb. I may not be perfect, but I trust in God and God blesses me. I don't trust in man. And frankly, it's really hard to respond to someone who says that even if you think the person is way off by looking at their life. But God gives us very sobering warning in this text to all who are quick to say that their trust is in God and not man. He says, verse 9, listen closely to the translation that I'm going to read. The heart is more deceitful than anything else, and it is incurable. Who can know it? It's like he anticipates us upon hearing curses to the person who trusts in man, blessings to the person who trusts in God. It's like he anticipates us searching our hearts, searching our hearts. It's like he anticipates us answering that question by doing what? Searching our hearts to see where our trust lies. And while we are searching our hearts to make sure that we're trusting in the Lord and not man, he says to us, The thing that you're currently searching to see where your trust lies is the most deceitful thing in all the world. That's the point. That's the context of this well-known verse. It's not just a good verse to yank out of the Bible and throw in a doctrinal statement on the nature of man. It's an in-your-face warning to you and to me who the first place to which we're told to discern where our trust lies is our hearts. He says it's actually an object with more deceit in it than anything else in the world. The ESV says the heart is deceitful above all things. And I hope you see the irony and the terror of that reality as much as I am today, as much as I've been struck with over the last few days. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to those of us who evaluate our state by searching in our fallibility, our own deceitful hearts. He's saying, your heart may lead you to to conclude that you're doing just fine. You're just like everybody else. When in reality, the opposite may be the case. So forget about us deceiving each other about where we stand with God. The more dangerous deception is your own heart deceiving you. It's your heart that's deceitful. It's my heart that's deceitful. Not only toward others, but primarily toward ourselves. More deceitfully says than anything else in the world. 
And not only that, but he says your deceitful heart is also what? Incurable. Desperately wicked or desperately sick does not quite cut it there, brothers and sisters. If your heart is only desperately wicked, there is still hope for you to make it on your own because in your desperation, you may just find your own way. But what this verse is really saying is that your heart is both deceitful and incurable. I can show you the meaning in a Hebrew lexicon if you think I'm just trying to exaggerate the point. Incurable is the meaning. Meaning you can't do anything about it even if you wanted to, which you don't want to. And you never will want to. But even if you did, you can't. So put it together. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. Why? Well, not only because to trust in mankind is to forsake God and strive against him in life, but look what you're forsaking him for. Faith in a deceptive, wicked, incurable heart. Your own or someone else's. You're doomed to live and die deceived as long as you trust in you. And God asks a question at the end of verse 9 that's designed to counter any person who might be thinking at this point, well, not my heart. Don't tell me my heart's that bad. I know my heart. And it's not wicked or deceitful or incurable. How dare you tell me that? And God says, who can know it? The answer is implied there, by the way. It's rhetorical. He's saying you can't even begin to detect the deceitfulness of your own heart and the fact that you think your heart is an exception. So if at the beginning, when I said if they can fail, if she can crack, if he can forsake it all, if their marriage can end, if you sat there thinking, that's not me, no way. No way my marriage can fail. No way I'd throw this all away. No way I'd crack. No way I'd forsake everything. He's asking you this question. You think you know your heart? He said the fact that you can listen to those charges, if they can, so can you. If you can process that and say, not me, he's saying it's proof positive of how deceived you are. So the person who has resorted to trusting in himself because everyone else has failed him, In his mind, possibly even God is trusting in something that he thinks he understands, that he thinks he controls, that he thinks he controls. But in reality, he does not and he cannot. He's trusting in his own heart. Nobody can understand the deceit that's in their own heart. Nobody can cure their own heart from its deceit, which prepares us beautifully. For verse 10. Who can know it? The implied answer is not you, not me, none of us. Verse 10. But God. Thought of you, Mike Hamby, because we were just having this conversation. This isn't one of those explicitly but God passages, but this is a but God passage. Who can know it? Not you, not me, none of us, but God. That's why he says in verse 10, after asking that sobering, penetrating, rhetorical question, he says, I know it. I know your heart. I, the Lord, search the heart that you can't know or control. I search it and I test it. All those 
heavy, weighty, painful things that we read before. That's him doing this because he knows the heart. And because he alone can cure the heart is why he did all that. Who can know it? Not you. God can. I, the Lord, search the heart, test the mind. Why? To give. Threateningly, he says to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So who can know the heart? The answer is none of us. And when that leaves us nowhere to go, which it does, God steps right back in and says, but I know it. I created it, and I alone can cure it from its sin and deception. Leads to the obvious question, what's the cure? The only cure to the human heart is for God to change it. And by change it, I mean for him to regenerate it. To make it spiritually alive from its deadness in sin, which he does by grace alone. By his spirit, in his mercy, through the payment that was made for sin by the God-man. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God's Son, in Christ we receive from God. Not according to this threatening fruit of our deeds. Brothers and sisters, that's what's atoned for. That's what's removed. But in Christ we receive the fruit of his deeds. Bounty life. And an inheritance that will never be taken away and given to another. It is yours. It's what we celebrate when we have the Lord's Supper. It is blood atonement for sin. And it's a new covenant where we are his forevermore. And all of his promises to us are guaranteed forevermore. So, I wonder this morning, which image portrays you right now? The shrub in the desert with shallow roots, fighting and stretching and searching in your own strength for water you will never find. Destined to dry out and die if you will not repent. Or... A tree planted with deep roots by the river of life-giving water in Christ. Self-deceived with no cure. Destined to receive the fruit of your own faithless deeds or firmly trusting in Jesus. Regenerated to life and faith by grace. And destined to receive the fruit of his deeds forever. Christ Fellowship, I wish I could stand up here and say, enough, enough. Can't we all just agree together to stop the insanity of sin and self-deception and apostasy? I wish it were as simple as me just saying, don't be like so-and-so. But that's the problem, brothers and sisters. We are like so-and-so. Fallen, deceived to the core, incurable. Which is why I want to shove the mirror away from you this morning and tell you stop looking at you. 
because you likely will conclude that you're good, you're strong, you can handle it, right? I'm going to shove that mirror away. I'm going to point you once again to Christ for life. Where he says, I've come for this reason that they may have life and that they might have it more abundantly forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Lord, in your providence and your grace, um, earthly circumstances led us out of Mark to this text this morning. No idea what else is going on. It's in your care. But um, perhaps the predominant need in this room is for rescue the shrub in the desert in this room, scrambling, searching for water, thinking they've got this. They need rescue. Some here even lost in their sin. Destined for the eternal effect of the curse away from the presence of Jesus forevermore. They need rescue. Strip us, Lord, from any degree of self-dependency. Any sense of immunity to the horrific sin that we see on display everywhere. Strip us of any sense of immunity or self-dependency. Let us see Jesus afresh and run to him with a renewed urgency, urgency. for life-giving, sustaining water in him. We pray this in Jesus' name.